This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus cool advances in tech. Do acupuncturists need HIPAA? And cheap IT can be expensive. This is episode 15. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawashtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, before we jump in, I just want to say thanks for listening to this podcast. Show some love on Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It would be great if you could leave us some feedback, positive feedback, of course. Um, Right after you listen to this episode, go over there, say five stars, say great podcast, whatever. We really, really would appreciate it because it really helps us spread the word. Um, Also... If you go on Facebook and search for Get HIPAA Compliance, if you are a business that has to deal with HIPAA Compliance, search for Get HIPAA Compliance and join the Get HIPAA Compliance Facebook group. I share stuff to that group all the time, including this podcast. Um, So go ahead and join. Really uh, would be helpful to your business if you have to deal with HIPAA. Uh, We do have one question that came in. It is from an IT person. Uh, I own a break-fix IT business. I was contacted by a physical therapist to help with some basic computer issues, so I believe it was something to do with the browser. Is there anything I need to know about HIPAA before agreeing to help? So I will say this much before before I answer the question. We wrote a blog post yesterday basically based on that, and we're going to review that later. But the short answer right now is, if you have to ask that question, you're not prepared to deal with a, a business that needs to be HIPAA compliant. So it's best to either refer it to another business or, um, uh, you know, there really is no alternative. Refer it to another HIPAA, another business that is capable of handling a HIPAA compliant, a HIPAA covered entity and um, and is able to sign a business associate agreement. And then go and learn some, some stuff about HIPAA because it is a big deal and you do need to protect yourself and that of your clients. So, um, that's the answer. That's the short answer. And we of course wrote the blog post that we'll review later in the podcast. All right. Patch Tuesday updates. Um, on top of everything else from January, you can go back to the previous episodes to hear about those. There were three new updates released this week. We have a Cisco WebEx flaw that was patched, um, the, the WebEx flaw let unauthenticated users join private online meetings. We have Apple releasing multiple security updates for for both um, OS X and for iOS. So you'll want to update as quickly as possible. And in another Cisco update, Cisco releases security updates for Cisco small business switches. So if you are uh, using any of those, I'm sure a lot of people are using both Cisco products and Apple products. Uh, you're going to want to take care of those. And then, of course, if you have not applied any of the updates from earlier in the month, take care of those too. Oh, Windows 7 did release an update 
post-mortem, I guess, uh, an update to address the, um, there was an issue with the screen resolution, I believe it was, or something along those lines. So, oh, the, I think it was the, um, something with the, the background of your desktop. Um, so that update is available. Um, but that's it for Patch Tuesday, and that is the end of January, so we will not be talking about Patch Tuesday for January anymore. We'll be moving on to February next week. It'll probably be a couple weeks before there's any February Patch Tuesday updates. Let's talk about the news for the week. First up in Forbes. We have a couple articles from Forbes today. Uh, average cost to recover from ransomware skyrockets to $84,000. That is almost double what it was just a year ago. So they have that last year it was $41,198. So that would be more than doubled. Now 84116 The numbers I had for last year were $46,800. Um. So even that, you know, almost double, that is a lot of money. The biggest ransomware threats for this coming year look to be Soto Nakibi, Maze, and BitPyLocker. Uh, I believe all three of them now have said that they will expose data. And if, if you don't pay up, so they'll steal your data, encrypt it, send you the ransom note. And then if you don't pay up, release the data and Soto Nakibi and Maze have both held true to that. They have released data for some of the victims that they have attacked. So something to think about if you if you're still putting off um, taking cybersecurity seriously. On Cyware, the NSA releases guidelines to improve cloud security. Um, the guidelines include mitigation techniques of cloud vulnerabilities other than the identification of cloud security components, threat actors and more. NSA hopes that organizations can gain perspective on cloud security principles while addressing cloud security considerations to assist with cloud service procurement. Um, so NSA once again showing that they can play nice in the sandbox, are sharing more information to help business businesses and, of course, the government stay better protected in, in the cloud. So, mis so the most common things that they've uh, addressed here misconfiguration which um, we know happens quite a bit poor access control again we know happens quite a bit shared tenancy vulnerabilities we're going to talk about one of those in a moment um, generally this is not as big a deal as the first two is very rare and even even less likely to be a compromise because um, it's it takes a little more sophistication from a hacker and then finally, supply chain vulnerabilities. So supply chain being things like the hardware and the software that you use, um, any cloud components you might use, monitoring software, things like that. Um, where are the vulnerabilities there? So as an example, a few MSPs were compromised last year, and then the remote support software that they used to connect to their clients was used to launch ransomware on their client machines. So are we using multi-factor authentication? Are we using the proper password protections? And those types of things. That's supply chain. Um, so it'll be interesting. We're going to talk about a, a misconfiguration shortly. Trello exposed. Search turns up 
huge trove of private data. So Trello is a is a collaboration type software. It is their boards that you collaborate with other users across your organization or across the world. It could be um, they by default keep their boards private however some many users are setting them to public which means that the boards are exposed and some of the boards that were exposed including there was one that had hr onboarding and included personally identifiable information which means address phone numbers names email addresses things like that there was a housing company that listed the fixes needed to be done on the individual homes and that included broken locks. There was um, a facilities company that listed names, emails, dates of birth, ID numbers, and bank account information for um, for staff. And it was an HR board that details specific job offers to someone including their salary bonus and contractual obligations. That's just a few. And um, this is a this is a perfect example of of um, not setting the proper controls, putting the proper controls in place. So if you if we talk about what we just talked about with CISA, this is the a perfect example of that. This is not understanding how to properly secure a sensitive information that is throughout the organization and now it is um, being found on the internet. So this misconfiguration and Potentially access controls there too, but most likely misconfiguration. On Krebs on security, we have Wawa breach may have compromised more than 30 million payment cards now. So this 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 compromise that occurred last year, it's almost a year ago. I think it was May, uh, not March. Sorry, March of last year, um, compromised the POSs and the card readers from uh, 850 Wawa stores. They are now saying that 30 million records credit card records are available on the dark web to be purchased. Um, and if you don't know, credit cards can be purchased for as little as $2 on the internet. Um, Wawa said the breach did not expose personal identification numbers or CVV. However, the cards can still be used as credit cards on the internet. And um, if you're not watching, if you've used, if you've been to Wawa, and it is in over 40 states in the United States. If you've been to Wawa in the last year, you're going to want to check your credit. And if you, you know what credit card it is, maybe potentially get a new one, get it replaced. They are offering some, they've warned their, their clients and they are offering some, uh, I believe credit monitoring. I don't see it here, but I believe they are offering credit monitoring. Threat post, Google sets record high in bug bounty payouts. So basically, Google has paid out $6.5 million in bug bounty rewards in 2019. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The bug bounty program is a good way to make some extra income if you're interested. It's a good way to learn about technology. Um, the bonuses were, were um, paid out for all things across the Google world. So it's Google Chrome, Android, Chromebook, all those things. Um, Gmail. G Suite. Um, so they've paid out $6.5 million. Also in 2019, Google tripled top reward payouts for security flaws in Chrome from five to 15,000 and doubled the maximum reward amount for high quality reports from 15 to 30,000. So again, there are plenty of bug bounty sites you can learn from. And in practice, we do a little bit here. We don't do a lot because I don't have a lot of time to do those things. 
Um, but you can make some money. There's a few now millionaires from bug bounty programs. A on ZDNet, a burger flipping robot now stands on its head. So I did say at the beginning of the episode this was going to talk about some cool new tech. And this is a cool new tech, depending on your perspective, because it's also probably going to take some jobs away at some point. The days of line cook are numbered thanks to this robotic chef. The creative robotic arm designed to cook burgers and other quick serve food at high turnover restaurants has a bright idea. Why not turn the robot upside down? Introducing the Flippy 2.0, a robotic fry cook and kitchen assistant that's on its way to transforming fast food. Flippy is a lightweight industrial robotic arm with a spatula for an end effector bundled with a sensor suite and smart AI that helps it get better the more it cooks. The robot started its professional career flipping burgers at Cali Burger, but it may soon be moving up to other foods thanks to the new prototype from Missile Robots Robotics. Dubbed the Missile Robot on Rail, Roar, R-O-A-R, the new design responds to difficult challenge for those hoping to bring automation into existing kitchens. Namely, there isn't much space around the stove or griddle, and human coworkers tend to need whatever space there is to maneuver. So the idea is flip it upside down, and now there's more space. Um, and there's a picture there so you can see what they mean. But um, it's cool. It really is cool. It could mean the end of um, cooks in some places. I don't think you you know you can't can't replace a chef, but you could replace somebody who's just flipping burgers, I suppose. Um, and it highlights a point though it highlights the it highlights the need to train people in other areas now train people how to think critically how to um work with technology uh so it, it's going to be more and more more and more prevalent and and we're already seeing it we're seeing kiosks we're seeing robots in the stores doing basic things so and we're we're Delivery robots are coming. They're already being tried. And I think I, I think I have that to talk about too. Um, so these things are happening, and we need to f- refocus our thinking to things that will be beneficial to our future for employment. Because these are taking jobs. Unfortunately, one of the jobs it's going to take is high school jobs. Um, on Forbes, Severe Perfect 10.0 Microsoft flaw confirmed. This is a cloud security nightmare. I do believe they they may be maybe stretching it a little bit here, but this is a cloud security nightmare, according to checkpoints. Yanov Balmas tells me this is the author Zach Doffman. It undermines the concept of cloud security. You can't prevent it. You can't protect yourself. The only one who who can is the cloud provider. So this goes back to the tenancy um, aspect that we talked about a moment ago. In this case, on Microsoft Azure, checkpoint found a vulnerability. Disclose it to Microsoft, and Microsoft did take care of it. They've also found vulnerabilities in WhatsApp, TikTok, and Zoom in recent months. Um, but the vulnerability was in the hardware that re- exists to so, to be able to launch these virtual servers on Azure. And the problem is that they were able to exploit it and potentially see what is on the other servers um, now there is some chip issues as well that we know about for intel um, but let me just read this when i don't think we're talking about intel today anyway so um 
So he states it's huge. I can't even start to describe how big it is. The reason for the hyperbole that Balma says his team found the first remote code exp execution exploit on a major cloud platform. One user could break the cloud isolation. So the servers, you've spin up a server, is supposed to be isolated from all the others unless you, you know, in your configuration, connect it to something. So in doing so, they can intercept code, manipulate programs, and isolation is the basis of cloud security, enabling the safe sharing of common hardware. So again, you have the Microsoft has this usually very, very powerful server that you can spin up software versions of servers, so virtual machines is what it really is. And those are supposed to be isolated from other virtual machines on that same hardware server. And they found, Checkpoint found a flaw that allowed for remote code execution between those supposedly isolated servers. And in the last bit of news, TrickBot, and this is on Bleepy Computer, TrickBot uses a new Windows 10 UIC bypass to launch quietly. So TrickBot, as we know, is a baking Trojan, um, has switched to a new Windows 10 USA bypass to execute itself with elevated privileges without showing a user account control prompt. I think this is the second time I'm reporting something similar to this. So Windows users, Windows uses a security mechanism called United uh, User Account Control UAC that will display a prompt every time a program is run with administrative privileges. When these prompts are shown, they will ask logged in user if they wish to allow the program to make changes and if the program is suspicious or unrecognized the user will uh, of course select no the uic bypasses are found in legitimate microsoft windows programs that are used by used by the operating system to launch other programs as they are not considered a high priority to microsoft it could be a while before discovered bypasses are fixed if at all so trickbot figured it out they you know the way you Windows, Microsoft does it, so now they're going to do it too. Another reason to stay secure, stay up to date. That's going to do it for the news. We're going to move on to our hot topics for the week. All right, the hot topics. We um we're going to focus on some positives this week. There wasn't a whole lot of ransomware attacks reported or cybersecurity issues reported this week. So we're going to fo we're going to focus on some positives for a change. Um and cuz tech has a lot of upside too. Egypt's building a new capital inside the smart city in the desert. A new administrative center being built between the Nile and the Suez Canal will be the country's first smart city. Egypt is building a new, as yet unnamed, capital designed to be the country's new administrative hub and home to more than 6.5 million residents. The new capital will cover 700 square kilometers or 270 square miles, making it about the size of Singapore and will be located 35 kilometers or 21 miles east of Cairo. Plans for the city include a new parliament and presidential palace, Egypt's largest airport, Africa's tallest tower, the Middle East's largest opera house, a $20 billion entertainment district, and a giant urban park bigger than Central Park in New York. One key driver behind the initiative is the country's rapid population growth. A new baby is born in Egypt, the most populous country in the Middle East, every 15 seconds, which translates to about 2 million new people per year. Cairo is already a congested, po a congested polluted, and overcrowded city. 
that is predicted to double in size by 2050 to 40 million people. By then, the country's wider population is expected to jump to 150 million, up from just 100 million today. Forget ISIS, Egypt's population boom is the biggest threat. That's what Newsweek said in 2017. Population challenges aside, other potential motives for the move include a desire by President Sisi, who came to power when the military took charge in 2011 to break from the past and make his mark in history, as well as efforts to stimulate the economy, which has remained sluggish since the events of the Arab Spring. Money well spent, projected costs for the new capital range between $45 billion and $58 billion. While the initiative has its supporters, others have questioned expense, given some of the financial challenges such as rapid inflation, unemployment, a downturn in tourism, shoddy infrastructure, and a modest job creation that the country has faced in recent years. Although there are positive signs in all these areas, there is still a lot of work to be done for the country to watch the government spend tens of billions on us, on the city while also hearing them say we have to tighten our belts, it sends a contradictory message. Timothy Caldas, a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute of Middle East Policy in Cairo, told NBC News. There is something very wrong with the order of priorities, agreed political analyst Hassan Nafa in an interview with the AP. Maybe LCC wants to go down in history as the leader who built the new capital, but if Egyptians don't see an improvement in their living conditions and services, he will be remembered as the president who destroyed what is left of the middle class you know you know political stuff aside i think we're seeing the end of the political of the middle class anyway across the world despite these misgivings development is rapidly moving ahead the first government ministries are intended to relocate to the new capital in the mid-2020 and a flurry of contracts have recently been signed for everything from a new 834 million business park to a citywide digital security system in honeywell installing over 6,000 wireless cameras across the city Meanwhile, the state-owned operator Telecom Egypt agreed in September 2019 to build a, a $40 billion in Egyptian, which works out to $2.44 billion telecommunications network, network within the next six months. Train and plane manufacturer Bombardier has been contracted to build a 21-station monorail in the, new York, in the new city, as well as a new line to connect East Cairo with the new capital. Described by... Danny DePierna, the president of Bombardier Transportation, as the smart mobility solution for Cairo's urban future. The 54-kilometer, which is 33-mile line, can carry 45,000 passengers an hour. The estimated travel time from East Cairo to the new capital is around 60 minutes. A website for the project promises that the new capital is developed with strategic vision for a smart city integrating a smart infrastructure to provide many services to citizens. The vision includes smart routing of traffic congestion and accidents, smart utilities to reduce consumption and costs, smart buildings and energy management, including a focus on renewable energy and using IoT to save power consumption, as well as building optical fiber infrastructure connecting every building using FTTX technology. Plans for a 900 square kilometer, which is roughly 35 square miles farm, are also part of the mix. Along this, the government has announced that it intends to make the new administrative capital the first cashless city in the country. So that's interesting. Um, again, there's some financial challenges, and of course, some people who believe it's not the right step forward. I am a, a proponent of of um, innovation, and I think maybe yes, there are challenges, but maybe it's uh, you know first of all, it does stimulate the economy because it, it creates jobs. But at the same time, maybe this is the future. Maybe this is what needs to be done um, in order to improve things worldwide, not just in Egypt, but anywhere.
another cool article that was on ZDNet. So is this one, Drones, Autonomous Driving, and More UPS's New Modernization Initiative. So I mentioned earlier we were going to talk a little bit about delivery robots. But uh, UPS on Wednesday announced a series of new initiatives, partnerships, and products all aimed at upgrading its global logistics network. And this is innovation, guys. This is Innovation 101. We know Amazon is really pushing its way into the delivery world and uh, taking a chunk away from UPS and FedEx and the United Postal Service. And so this is UPS saying, okay, we're not going to take this lying down. We saw what happened to, to a lot of retail outlets, and we're not going to let that happen to us. A few of the announcements were focused specifically on modernizing its delivery fleet with autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. First, UPS announced a new partnership with the self-driving car company Waymo. The companies are jointly launching a pilot program to test autonomous vehicle package pickup in the Phoenix, Arizona area. Starting in the coming weeks, Waymo's Chrysler Pacifica minivans will deliver packages from UPS stores locations to a local UPS sorting facility. The minivans will drive autonomously with a Waymo trained driver on board to monitor operations. While this is just a pilot, the company's aim to develop a long-term partnership plan. Meanwhile, UPS's venture capital arm, UPS Ventures, is investing in Arrival, which makes electric vehicle platforms and purpose-built vehicles. UPS also plans to purchase 10,000 electric vehicles from the company and collaborate with its developed electric with it to develop electric vehicles with advanced driver assistance systems, ADAS. UPS is also expanding its drone operations in the healthcare sector, a key business vertical for UPS. First, the logistics company announced an initiative to test drone delivery use cases with Henry Schein, a worldwide distributor of medical and dental supplies. They also they'll focus on testing the delivery of essential healthcare products to destinations where traditional road transport may be less effective or timely, such as remote communities or areas impacted by natural disaster. Last year, UPS formed a subsidiary drone business, UPS Flight Forward. It received a highly restricted air carrier certification from the Federal Aviation Administration, allowing for approved UPS drones to fly over people at night and out of the operator's line of sight. After granting UPS Flight Forward, After granting UPS Flight Forward the special certification, the FAA authorized the company to operate a drone delivery program at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. UPS announced Wednesday that it's expanding its UPS Flight Forward service to the University of California at San Diego Health. Launching in February in partnership with MatterNet, the drone program will will be used to transport various medical products between health centers and labs per FFA, FAA rules. The drones will follow predetermined flight paths within visual line of sight. A little more from UPS. The logistics company plans to add 5 million square feet of new automated sortation capacity to its facilities this year. Starting with new facilities in Pennsylvania, UPS is more than halfway through a three-year plan to add more automation to its facilities with the goal to drive 30 to 35% improved productivity when compared to manual processing in older sites. By the end of 2021, nearly 100% of eligible packages will be sorted with automated technology. UPS announced the next generation of its on-road integrated optimization and navigation, Orion, platform. The latest version includes dynamic optimization, which recalculates individual package delivery routes throughout the day to account for traffic conditions as well as changing pickup commitments and delivery orders. UPS announced that Square is joining its digital access program, giving merchants working with Square and platform access to UPS services. So that's pretty cool, too. The program p- 
program provides access to a suite of UPS services to more easily fulfill e-commerce orders and manage shipping. Thinking of the little guy. So uh, UPS really making some strides in innovation. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and it, whether or not FedEx and United States Postal Service, which is notorious, notoriously behind the times, um, we'll see how that plays out for them and other delivery services. There are smaller ones, of course, uh, but Amazon has really, really got every, everybody else think, rethinking strategy right now. And then finally, a blog post on nwajtech.com, nwajtech.com. One way cheap IT costs more for healthcare. And I, I told you about the question of the week earlier in the episode, so that's why this blog post came to be. So cheap IT is not good IT and can cost you much more in the long run. And this is really is about healthcare, but it can be any business. So here's the thing. You own an you own or operate a healthcare practice. It might be a physician's practice, optometrist, dentist, or even a chiropractor. Maybe you're running an ambulance service. Perhaps you have an independent pharmacy in the middle of the town that everyone loves. No matter what type of healthcare entity you have, there's no doubt that you're using computers and other forms of technology. When you need technical support, you probably call around, hire someone who's relatively cheap to fix the issue, and then go about your business. You might even have someone you reach out to every time you have a problem. It could be someone referred to you by another business owner. It might even be a family member who fixes computers as a hobby. And by the way, those are all real scenarios. I, uh, I'll get to that. You hired the IT consultant in large part because they offered service at a much more affordable rate than some of the other IT consultants in the area. That's great. You're saving a few bucks and getting your computers repaired when they need to be. That IT consultant could end up costing you far more than the established, more expensive IT consultants. Let's forget about bad advice, shortcuts, and mistakes an underqualified IT consultant can make. Things like using free anti-malware for programs or not properly validating your backup solutions or even suggesting that you use a shared Gmail just for the entire staff to simplify things. Yes, I have witnessed all of these things. There is one incredibly important reason not to hire the guy down the street who fixes your neighbor's computers for $50. All the businesses I listed above most likely need to have a HIPAA program in place, part of the Part of HIPAA says that anyone, vendors who you hire to perform work that may include potentially accessing PHI, that is protected health information, require a business associate agreement. The omnibus, omnibus rule states that a business associate, which is essentially your downstream for support of your healthcare business, can be held liable under the HIPAA rules. In fact, the OCR has stated that we can expect more enforcement directed at business associates. In other words, if a breach occurs, an IT consultant is at fault, then then they will be the party the OCR investigates and potentially finds. If you don't have a BAA in place with the IT consultant, then the OCR is going to hold you liable. If they determine that a HIPAA program was not being filed, if you don't have a BAA with your IT consultant, then you most likely don't have a HIPAA compliance program. You should you could be subject to enforcement. HIPAA enforcement can and usually does include financial penalties and corrective action plan. In many cases, the corrective action plan can cost more than the settlement. The corrective action plan will also mean you'll need to hire a qualified IT consultant that will sign a BAA. A few thousand dollars you save by hiring the neighborhood guy who pushes free anti-malware programs are starting to look like a bad decision, isn't it? Let me try to put this another way. If you're a chiropractor and someone came into your practice because of back pain but decided 
They were going to go to a friend of a friend because they can fix their back issues for a lot less money. Would that sit well with you? No, because they are not qualified and they would potentially hurt the person even more. IT consulting is no different. You want to hire qualified experienced support to have pre- to prevent breaches. You want to have someone that has as much skin in the game as you. So why did I bring this up? Again, I, I told you about the question. Um, but, you know, in all honesty, I do see this a lot. I see, and it's not so much physicians' offices. It's more the dentists, the optometrists, the chiropractors, those types of businesses that some believe they don't need to, to follow HIPAA, and they're wrong. They do. The HIPAA rule says if you're transmitting to an insurance company electronically, and so I'm paraphrasing, if you're transmitting to an insurance company electronically, then you buy buy you are you do need to be covered under HIPAA. And then if you do somehow breach, and it's more likely if you don't believe that you need to follow HIPAA, if you are breached, then you are subject to to financial penalties and or settlements and a corrective action plan, which actually sometimes costs more than the, the, just the financial penalty because of the things you need to do to mitigate the problems. Um, so that's that's going to do it for our hot topics for the week. That last one is a blog post on our website, so you can go check that out. And the first two are on ZDNet. All right, it's time for a little bit of HIPAA education. Um, switching it up a little bit this week. This is coming from a blog post on Cohen Healthcare Law. I'm not familiar with them. They're not local to me. Um, but I was doing some research on whether or not uh, naturopaths and acupuncture and those types of, um, I guess it's Eastern medicine, we'll call it, um, whether or not they need to be HIPAA compliant. And I'll tell you, after reading this, there's still not a real clear answer. I will say, uh, and this is focused on acupuncture, by the way. So I will say if an acupuncturist is able to to bill through insurance and transmits electronically, then they should be covered under HIPAA. Um, that is not the direction that this article leads. Um, so some of this is going to be left up to your own interpretation. So let's let's go through it. Whether HIPAA applies to acupuncturists who share a medical record is one of those arcane questions our healthcare lawyers get. The answer isn't all that easy to obtain. So the same thing I said. Like many healthcare and FDA legal issues, this HIPAA question is fun treasure hunt through the legal rules. HIPAA itself is a real statute under which the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services has promulgated at least five regulations of which only the first two, privacy and security, are the ones we normally care about. Before we even start, there's a preemption rule to tackle HIPAA will supersede relevant state law unless state law is found to be more stringent. So as an example, in Connecticut, the reporting law, the, the rules for reporting a HIPAA breach are 60 days. Or, I'm sorry, in Connecticut, it's 90 days, but HIPAA says it's 60 days, so we would follow HIPAA in that case. Now, if Connecticut said 30 days, then we would follow Connecticut. Um, HIPAA does not preempt state requirements related to reporting of disease, child abuse, birth, and death, and that authorize public health surveillance of public health investigation or intervention. So we may see some of that soon with the uh, um, omni, uh, not omni, coronavirus 
outbreak. So if we start to see that more in the U.S., you can see you might see some of the public health surveillance. HIPAA re regulates electronic data exchange of healthcare information. The relevant provisions of HIPAA, known as the Administrative Simplification Provisions, essentially amend the Federal Social Security Act's Medicare and Medicaid provisions. HIPAA is intended to protect the privacy of patients' protected health information. PHI means individually identifiable health information that is transmitted by electronic media, maintained in electronic media, or transmitted or maintained in any other form of, or medium whether electronic or hard copies. So the paper copies are still covered. PHI is a subset, and I mention that because that is um, a common misconception. PHI is a subset of uh, individuals' health information. Identifiable health information means health information, including demographic inf information that identifies the individual or with respect to which there is a reasonable basis to believe information can be used to identify the individual. HIPAA requires covered entities to provide information in writing to patients about the privacy rights and how their information will be used. So when you visit your doctor, you sign that piece of paper that says they've told you, even though they didn't really tell you. Develop policies, procedures, and systems to protect patient privacy and patients' ability to access, attend, and amend their records, um, some of which we do. Train staff on these procedures, we also do. Appoint a privacy officer to ensure privacy procedures are developed and adopted and followed. Appoint a security officer to ensure security procedures are developed, adopted, and followed. Secure patient records that contain PHI from individuals who should not see them. Account for specified disclosures of PHI. Establish a, a complaint mechanism for privacy concerns. Establish and enforce a system of sanctions for employees who violate privacy policies and procedures. Notify patients and government agencies in the event of a breach where required, which is anywhere in the United States. Typically, healthcare plans subject to HIPAA will have a compliance plan, including a compliance manual with a full set of policies, procedures, and forms. HIPAA only applies to the following types of covered entities. For the moment, we're omitting business associates and their subcontractors. A health plan, a healthcare clearinghouse, a healthcare provider who transmits any health information in electronic form, in connection with the transaction referred to in Section 1173A1. Here, 262 refers to the section of HIPAA and 1173 to the section being inserted into the Social Security Act. HIPAA is, as noted, codified in Title 42 of the USC. Under HIPAA, the term health care provider includes a provider of services as defined in Section 1861U a provider of medical or other health services as defined in Section 1861S, and any other person furnishing health care services or supplies, next under 1861U. The term provider of services means a hospital, critical access hospital, skilled nursing facility, comprehensive outpatient rehabilitation facility, home health agency, hospice program, or a fund. The term medical or other services has a lengthy definition which includes physician services, services and supplies furnished as an incident to a physician's professional service, diagnostic x-rays, tests, durable medical equipment, ambulance service, and other services which do not appear to apply to service, services an acupuncturist, acupuncturist might furnish. The catch-all, any other person furnishing health care services or supplies, is not limited to medical services or physicians. It would appear to encompass services by an acupuncturist. This conclusion is bolstered by a definition of health care under HIPAA regulation. HIPAA health care means 
care, services, or supplies related to the health of an individual. Healthcare includes but is not limited to the following preventative, diagnostic, therapeutic, rehabilitative, maintenance, or palliative care and counseling service, assessment, or procedure with respect to the physical or mental condition or functional status of an individual or or that affects the structure or function of the body and sale of dispensing sale or dispensing of a drug device equipment or other item in accordance with the prescription so that would be your pharmacies further the US Department of Health and Human Services on its webpage dedicated to health information privacy states that a healthcare provider includes doctors clinics psychologists dentists chiropractors nursing homes pharmacies and others but only if they transmit any information in electronic form in connection with the transaction of which hhs has adopted a standard the list suggests that other providers such as acupuncturists would not be included again open to interpretation hhs also provides an easy to use question and answer decision tool to determine whether one is a covered entity and i did i think i linked to that in a previous show but this article will be linked so you can get to that this links to a decision chart on the website for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The first question is, does the person, business, or agency furnish, bill, or receive payment for health care in a norm, normal course of business? So it does sound as though acupuncturists would be considered health care providers subject to HIPAA. However, HIPAA only applies to health care providers who pr- pr- transmit any health information in electronic form in connection with transaction referred to in Section 1173A1. The statutory section requires HHS to adopt standards for transactions and data elements for such transactions to enable health information to be exchanged electronically that are appropriate for the financial administrative transactions described in paragraph 2 and other financial administrative transactions determined appropriate by the Secretary consistent with the goals of improving the operation of healthcare system and reducing administrative costs. So part two, transactions. The transactions referred to in, in paragraph 1A are transactions, transactions, can't say that word today, transactions with respect to the following. Health claims or equivalent encounter in, in information, health claims attachments, enrollment and disenrollment in a health plan, eligibility for a health plan, health care payment and remittance advice, health plan premium payments, first report of injury, health claim status, referral certificate, referral certification, and authorization. Under the HIPAA regulations, transaction means the transmission of information between two parties to carry out financial or administrative activities rel- related to health care. It includes the following types of information transmissions. Healthcare claims or equivalent encounter information, healthcare payment and remittance advice, Coordination of benefits, healthcare claim status, enrollment and disenrollment in health plan, eligibility for health plan, health plan premium payments, referred certification and authorization, first report of injury, health claims attachments, other transactions that the secretary may prescribe by regulation. Of these, the question is whether sharing patient medical information in office via an EHR constitutes health claims or equivalent encounter information. HIPAA regulates define HIPAA regulations define health claims or equivalent operation equivalent encounter information as either of the following a request to obtain payment and a necessary accompanying information from a health care provider to a health plan for health care if there is no direct claim because the reimbursement contract is based on a mechanism other than charges or reimbursements rates for specific services the transaction is the transmission of an encounter information for the purpose of reporting health care 
So the scenario of acupuncturist sharing an EHR and and of itself does not appear to trigger HIPAA compliance necessarily. The short form of this is that we typically look to whether providers electronically transmit patient health information for insurance reimbursement. This isn't legal advice per se. It's a journey through regulatory treasure hunt. So um, all of that to say that we still don't have a, a solid answer, and I would say this. So I've actually used an acupuncturist in the past, and I paid cash. Um, I think most acupuncturists operate that way, that they will accept cash, uh, and they probably don't want to deal with the insurance companies, uh, maybe because of HIPAA, maybe because of the hassle of dealing with insurance companies. I don't know. Um, maybe I'll have a, an acupuncturist on a future episode because I, I am still friends with one. Uh, actually, probably a couple. But, but that being said, if the acupuncturist can bill insurance, and they do, and I don't think all insurance companies will, will uh, pay for acupuncture, but I will tell you it works. It works great. Um, and if you think it hurts, it doesn't. I fell asleep. After the first time, I fell asleep every time I went. Um, but if the insurance company will pay for acupuncture and the acupuncturist decides to bill the insurance company for the, for the session through electronic means, then to me that means that they are they do fall under HIPAA at that point. Um, because there is some gray areas in what I just read, and this is this is from a law firm's website, so this is somebody that deals with the legal aspects of HIPAA. So there are some gray areas, you know, that say other or, um, I, you know, it's hard to list all of the different healthcare options that are out there because you, now you get into naturopath, you get into um, things like Reiki, right? I'm not sure how to say it, Reiki. I think it is, um, which some people don't consider actual healthcare, but some people do. It's Eastern medicine. Eastern medicine is, is not really a popular choice in the United States. We follow more of a Western medicine, but there are people out there that, that really like Eastern medicine. It's more natural, and so that's their preference. Uh, so some food for thought. In my opinion, if the acupuncturist is billing for through insurance, through electronic methods, then they should be held under HIPAA. Um, that's going to do it for our HIPAA education piece. We'll talk about the breaches next. So we started off the week pretty hot with HIPAA breaches, then it got quiet, and then we have one from today, reported yesterday, I should say. Um, so let's start off. Beaumont Health discovers 20-month insider breach. Beaumont Health, a not-for-profit eight-hospital health system based in Southfield, Michigan, has discovered a former employee has access to medical record of patients without authorization and is understood to have shared protected health information with another individual. An internal investigation was launched when it was discovered medical records had been accessed without the author authorization a review of the former employee's access logs revealed the unauthorized access first occurred on February 1st, 2017 and continued until October 22nd, 2019. The breach was discovered in December 2018. Um, I'm not sure if these dates are wrong because that would be more than two years, not 20 months. So, 
the dates might there might be a typo here. Beaumont Health said its internal investigation un- determined on December 10, 2019, that the medical records of 1,182 patients were accessed over a period of 20 months. Information potentially obtained and its disclosed included names, addresses, contact telephone numbers, dates of birth, email addresses, health insurance information, reason why medical care was sought, and social security numbers. The individuals to whom the information was believed to have been disclosed was affiliated with a personal injury lawyer. So this is the second time we're seeing such a thing in the recent months. There was a, a New York hospital where the same thing happened. Most of the patients whose records were accessed had sought treatment for injuries sustained in motor vehicle accidents. When, author, un, when unauthorized access was confirmed, the employee was fired for violating hospital policies and HIPAA rules. The incident has been reported to law enforcement and Beaumont Health said it will assist law enforcement if prosecution is pursued. The matter has also been reported to Michigan Health and Hospital Association. All patients affected by the incident have been notified by mail. Credit monitoring and identity theft protection services have been offered to patients whose social security number was compromised. Patients have been advised to be alert to the risk of identity theft and fraud and have been advised to check their explanation of benefits, statements, and accounts carefully and to report any suspected case of misuse of their information. Beaumont Health has taken steps to update internal policies and procedures to prevent similar incidents from occurring in the future. So a little bit of um, maybe access controls. I'm not sure if the employee should have had access or not. Um, They obviously weren't monitoring access logs carefully. And uh, he he was giving the information to a personal injury attorney, probably for a kickback. Former VA employee sentenced for leaking medical records of former Army major, so yet another employee issue. Former employee at the Department of Veteran Affairs Benefits Administration has been sentenced for accessing accessing the medical records of veterans without authorization and for leaking the medical records of a former U.S. Army major who ran for Congress in West Virginia in 2018. Jeffrey Miller, 40, of Huntington, West Virginia, pleaded guilty to accessing medical records of six veterans, including the former Army major Richard Ojeda, Photographs of the records were taken and sent to an acquaintance. The image of Ojeda's medical records were subsequently distributed to high-ranking Republicans in an attempt to influence the 2018 campaign for the 3rd Congressional District in West Virginia. Miller was sentenced on January 21, 2020 in federal court and will serve six months in jail. So six months for stealing six records. Maybe one month per record. I don't know. Iowa Department of Human Services notifies 4,784 patients about improper disposal incident. So the Iowa Department of Human Services has notified 4,784 individuals about the potential exposure of some of their protected health information. On November 25, 2019, a member of staff disposed of documents containing the protected health information of Dallas County clients in a regular garbage dumpster instead of sending the records for shredding. By the time the improper disposal incident was discovered, the dumpster had been emptied. An investigation was launched, which revealed the custodial employee who disposed of the paperwork was unaware that the documents contained confidential information. It was not possible to determine exactly which patients patients were affected, so notification letters were sent to all individuals potentially impacted by the breach. The documents likely contained information such as names, dates of birth, mailing addresses, driver's license numbers, social security numbers, disability information, medical information, banking and wage information, receipt of Medicaid, mental health information, provider names, prescriptions, and substance abuse and illegal drug use information. So in this case, it sounds like we had uh, maybe a box or something that was not properly labeled and was mistaken for garbage and thrown out with regular garbage when it should have been taken to the shredder. 
Cedarbrook Nursing Home Residents Notified of Impermissible Disclosure of Prescription Information. 688 residents of the Cedarbrook Nursing Home in Lehigh, Pennsylvania, Lehigh County, Pennsylvania, are being notified that their prescription information was accidentally shared with companies interested in tendering for the house for the nursing home's pharmacy contract. An email was sent to 16 companies in December 2018 with an incorrect file attachment. The correct file contained invoice information detailing the medications described prescribed in October through November. The file attached to the email included the names of the patients who received those medications. The error was discovered promptly and requests were sent to all 16 companies asking for the file to be deleted. All 16 companies which were HIPAA covered entities confirmed that the file had been deleted. All affected individuals have been notified about the privacy breach out of the abundance of caution. The risk of misuse of patient information is believed to be very low. Procurement procedures have now been updated and require all out outgoing contact information to be checked by a supervisor prior to being sent. Again, a little bit of uh, 2020 is hindsight, or hindsight is 2020. Um, I think the issue that we have here is that um, how do we know that they really deleted that information? Hopefully they did, but how do we really know that they did? Um, and then the last one this week, our website error exposed personal and health data of LabCorp patients. So researchers at TechCrunch have identified a security flaw in a website hosting an internal customer relationship management system used by the clinical lab network LabCorp. While the system was password protected, the researchers found a flaw in the part of the system that pulled patient files from the backend system. The flaw allowed patient data to be accessed without requiring a password, and the web address was visible to search engines. Google had cached only one document containing the health data of a patient, but by changing the document number and the web address, the researchers were able to open other documents containing patient health information. Now, this this changing that one number, that is a bug bounty thing. So I mentioned bug bounty earlier. Google paid out $6.5 million last year. Um, that is a an, an early technique taught in bug bounty when you're learning about bug bounty. The researchers examined a small selection of files to see what types of data had been exposed. Documents mostly contained information about patients who had tests conducted by LabCorp's Integrated Oncology Specialty Testing Unit. The documents contained personal information such as names and dates of birth, lab test results and diagnostic data, and for some patients, social security numbers. TechCrunch researchers used computer commands to determine the number of documents accessible on the website. They structured the commands to return information about the properties of the files rather than opening the documents to avoid accessing patient information. The analysis revealed around 10,000 documents could potentially be accessed. TechCrunch notified LabCorp about the issue and the server was taken offline while, offline while the flaw was corrected. The link to the exposed data has not yet been removed from Google but is no longer active and cannot be used to view patient data. This is the second major security incident to be experienced by LabCorp in the past 12 months. The records of LabCorp patients were exposed in the 26 million record breach at American Medical Collection Agency, AMCA, in March 2019. 7.7 .7 million LabCorp patients were initially thought to have been affected, but the breach was re reported to the HHS OCR has, as having affected up to 10,251,784 LabCorp patients. So um, LabCorp really, really uh, not doing too well there and, and not entirely their fault. Um, that is going to do it for this episode of the Proactive IT Cyber Proactive IT Podcast. Almost got it confused with the daily episode. 
That is the end of this episode, the Proactive IT Podcast, episode 15. Until next week, everyone, enjoy the end of the month, stay secure, and we'll talk to you next week.